0: From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke. And in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. My guest today has a list of accomplishments that's so long I needed to edit it aggressively keep this episode within a reasonable running time. Starting with his upbringing, as you'll soon hear, Dr. Howard Coe is the child of immigrants to the United States who raised Howard and his siblings to be grateful for the opportunities afforded by their adopted country and to strive to make contributions here as they grew to become adults. Dr. Coe has certainly met and exceeded any reasonable expectations of even the most demanding parents. He's the Harvey V. Feinberg Professor of the Practice of Public Health Leadership at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, as well as faculty co-chair of the Harvard Advanced Leadership Initiative. And by the way, it was at this program that I met Dr. Ko. He also serves as the inaugural chair of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health Initiative on Health and Homelessness and co-director of the Initiative on Health, Spirituality, and Religion at Harvard University. From 2009 to 2014, Dr. Koh was the Assistant Secretary for Health for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services after being nominated by President Barack Obama and confirmed by the U.S. Senate. During that time, he oversaw 12 core public health offices, including the Office of the Surgeon General and the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps, 10 regional health offices across the nation, and 10 presidential and secretarial advisory committees. In his academic career, Dr. Ko has been principal investigator for over $27 million in research grant activities and published more than 300 articles in the medical and public health literature. His publications and writing address broad areas, such as disease prevention and health promotion, health reform, health equity, health and spirituality, public health emergency preparedness and the COVID-19 pandemic, health literacy, and public health leadership. From 1997 to 2003, Dr. Coe was commissioner of public health for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts after being appointed by Governor William Weld. Dr. Coe graduated from Yale College where he was president of the Yale Glee Club and the Yale University School of Medicine. He's earned over 70 awards and honors for interdisciplinary accomplishments in medicine and public health, including six honorary doctorate degrees. Hope you enjoy this Blue Sky conversation with Dr. Howard Koh as much as I did. Dr. Howard Koh, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast.
1: Bill, what a pleasure to be here. Uh, we had such a great time together at Harvard when you were an Advanced Leadership Initiative fellow, and it's always a pleasure to be with you. So thanks for having me today.
0: Well, thank you. I, I wanted to start with uh, your family background. I, My frequent listeners have heard me say many times that I consider immigrants to possibly be the ultimate optimist and i know that your family's history has had a lot to do with shaping you and I, I i was hoping you could talk a little bit about that
1: well bill thanks so much and how appropriate uh, that that's the first question so you know me well and it's uh fair to say that uh virtually every day of my life i have thought about my upbringing in an immigrant family and that has really made me who, who i am today uh bill you may remember that um My parents immigrated uh, to this country a generation ago, literally searching for the American dream. They were both from Korea. At the time, very few Koreans in this country. And we did not have a childhood, my siblings and I, that uh, other American kids had, because what I remember about being raised by my parents, especially by my dad, was that they would lecture us (laughs) literally every day saying that that we were fortunate to be living in this country, to have a society that valued rights and freedom, uh, that we had escaped a war-torn country and started a new life as strangers in this country. We, We were minorities, of course. And so they encouraged us to work as hard as we could in school to get the best education possible but very importantly, to have a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives. And so that is what carried me through my childhood in, into my college and medical school years. And then ultimately in my career as a physician and public health professional. I, I'm a pretty spiritual guy. Uh, it's said that you can only understand your life backwards, but you have to live it forwards. <laughs> and the uh, ultimate definition of spirituality is what has to do with ultimate meaning, purpose, and what connects you to something greater than yourself. And my parents embodied that. And I'm here today talking to you because of their sacrifice and their commitment. So it, it means a lot, Bill, that you raised that as the first. Oh, well, question.
0: my pleasure and thank you for that answer. And
1: I am curious to know that, so
0: based on what they told you about how fortunate you were to be here and, and your responsibility to give back, you could have chosen a lot of different paths. Why medicine and public health? What
1: what drew you to this field? So you asked about two separate but related fields, so I'll answer them uh, separately, actually. So my interest in medicine was very early on. I, I always knew as a young kid that I wanted a career uh, that was involved in helping people. I wanted a career where I could be present for people in a time of need. Hmm. Bill, I actually considered being a minister for a little while, but decided that um, medicine was a more appropriate calling for me. And so, from the time right. I was a teenager, I had announced to my family and others that I wanted to be a doctor. My, my own pediatrician, by the way, was a fantastic role model. He was such a c- caring and compassionate person. And then my parents, as immigrants in this country, were delighted because they thought if their oldest son <laughs> became a doctor, <laughs> it was a sign that they had made it in this society. So, yeah. That, that's what drew me into medicine, and you know, I went to college as a pre-med student, went to medical school and got my training, focused particularly on cancer and wanted to be the best cancer doctor in the world back then. But then a big transformation happened to me, something I did not anticipate, uh, and that is I could be the best cancer doctor in the world, study as hard as I could, be as compassionate as possible, but too many of my patients were, were dying too early, and suffering preventable suffering and dying preventable deaths and it f- frustrated me Bill very early on in my career as a young physician and actually angered me because so many of them actually were dying of tobacco related cancers and I knew that that was preventable and I had heard nothing about this in my training as a physician so what years would this be Dr. ko just to set the stage so I'd finished my internship and residency and uh, fellowship, and it was uh, in those years that this realization that I needed to go into more of a public health career came upon me, started thinking more about early detection and prevention. So I was in my you know, mid to late 20s as a, as a physician when, when this thought process was going on, and I, had, at the time, Bill, if you were talking to me, I had no idea what to do with this. <laughs> yeah, I I had never heard about public health or a public health school or a public health career. I didn't know what it was. I never heard anything about that at medical school. Right. But then an astonishing thing happened to me. I got involved in a tobacco tax ballot initiative campaign led by the American Cancer Society, now 30 years ago. Wow. And our state decided that we were going to be the second state after California to try to raise a tobacco tax by 25 cents per pack through a ballot initiative where people went to the polls and voted for it. And if that were successful, it would generate millions of dollars for public health and tobacco control in particular. So I got involved in that as a volunteer. It was successful. Uh, After the success occurred, I got asked to take over as chairman of the coalition. I, I chaired that co- coalition and it involved me doing more public events and press conferences. And then the governor of Massachusetts, William Weld, at the time, noticed me and plucked out of plucked me out of academia yes. <laughs> and made me the state health commissioner in 1997 and absolutely changed my life. So one day I was seeing patients at Boston Medical Center and doing some uh, research with a small team. The next day I was running a state health department with 3,000 employees, four hospitals, a $700 million budget. Oh, wow. And if I can say politics, morning, noon, and night. So that's how my public health career Incredible.
0: Ended. <laughs> Well, and, and you know, one of the reasons I wanted to ask you about when all this was with tobacco is, I think one of the reasons people t- struggle to be more optimistic is they take for granted the progress that we have made and continue to make. And it's funny, my wife and I were watching the film Midnight Run the other night, really fun movie, Robert De Niro, Charles Grodin. And we checked, it was made in 1988. And throughout the film, everybody's smoking including on the airplane. And we said, my gosh, we were, we were getting out of college then and you could still smoke on an airplane. Yep. And I bet you most people you know, under 40 don't even know that was ever a thing. So I think we should take some pride and credit. We still obviously have a long way to go, but on a subject like tobacco
1: use, we've made huge strides in, your, in the span of your career alone. Thank you. Yeah. So that's a great example of how, Bill, the reason we have been in this pandemic for well over a century is the tobacco industry has taken their product, which addicts people and causes so many terrible outcomes and diseases, particularly cancer, and they've normalized it and glamorized it. So, you know, they were in movies back then and it was considered cool So what the public health community has done is slowly but steadily denormalized and de-glamorized cigarette use. So we're very, very proud of that. When I subsequently became Assistant Secretary for Health in the Obama administration, I I led the first ever Health and Human Services Action Plan for Tobacco Control. That was when the Affordable Care Act was being passed, and we leveraged the that capacity, and also the fact that the FDA was regulating tobacco for the first time in U.S. history um, back then, and so that was 2009. So we were very, very proud. And Bill, as you pointed out, over the decades we have made such progress so that currently adult smoking rates are about 11, 11 and percent. It used to be four times that. Oh yeah. When the Surgeon General's report came out in 1964. You smoking, which used to be 25 30%, is down around 2%. This is for cigarettes. So that's the good news. The, the challenge, of course, is that e-cigarette use is higher, so that's still complicating things. But you're right. If you want to look at one major example of how, if you persevere, <laughs> you, you tackle the opposition with the best science and the best passion you can, you can make progress. And, Bill, it's also important to point out The cancer death rates in this country have dropped by about a third in the last 30 years. A large part of that is due to improvements in tobacco control. Another major part is improvements in treatment and immunotherapies, for example, uh, which has been dramatic. So tobacco and cancer, here are two areas where we've seen tremendous public health improvements over the decades. And that reflects commitment from so many people. So that's what keeps me... Inspired day to day as we look at many other challenges that are facing us right now. Yes. Well, and, you know, sometimes when you tell people, I tell people I'm working on something, the
0: Optimism Institute, some people look at optimism as sort of a pie in the sky or simpletons are optimistic. But my my definition involves action and that things don't just get better. It it requires work. And it's kind of effort that you and colleagues put in that has us set the smoking rates that we are now. It didn't just happen, and frankly, it wouldn't have just happened without these efforts. Howard Koh says that his parents reminded him nearly every night that he was lucky to live in the United States and to be afforded the rights and freedoms his family was denied in Korea. And along with Robert Seufer, he's the second physician I've interviewed who was inspired by other doctors when he was growing up In Dr. Koh's case, it was his pediatrician. And it's interesting to see how he made the move from practicing oncology to deciding he might have a bigger impact trying to prevent people from getting cancer in the first place, particularly those forms of the disease that are caused by tobacco use. And to a point we try to make often at the Optimism Institute, let's not take for granted the continuous progress we make as a society. Cutting adult smoking rates from 40% to 11% in a matter of decades is remarkable and inspiring. Getting back to our conversation, I wanted Dr. Koh to reflect on his years working in the federal government as part of the Obama administration. I'd love to hear your take on, you were there during some very heady times in terms of progress in healthcare reform and when I talk to people about politics, some either say you couldn't, I wouldn't get involved with politics on a bet. Others think it's the best way to change people's lives for the better. What was your experience like? You were in state government, but you were at the center of a huge movement for healthcare reform in the Obama administration. What was your
1: takeaway from that experience? I'm sure you have several. Uh, thanks for asking. Yeah, so here I am a physician You know, hoping to start my career as being the best cancer doctor ever, working in clinical settings. But now I'm looking back at my journey. I spent over a decade in government, in state government and federal government, in leadership positions at the state and federal level. I I never planned any of this. That's just the way it happened. And uh, Bill, you're right. When I joined the Obama administration as assistant secretary in 2009, it was quite a heady time. Uh, You know, Barack Obama had just been elected president. That was uh, the promise. But H1N1, the last pandemic before COVID oh, was on right. the horizon, Yeah, uh, we literally had millions of federal employees working lockstep day in and day out to, to tackle that challenge. And fortunately, the morbidity and mortality from that last pandemic was, was not nearly what we're seeing uh, now with COVID. Uh, we can talk more about that if you want. But then, and then shortly after that was quieting down in 2010, the Affordable Care Act was passed and we we're off and running. But when you get to see the passion and commitment of people in government service, when you see government leaders getting up every morning because they really want to make a difference in the lives of all people, I mean, it's the most inspiring thing in the world. Bill. Hmm. And it's done on a public stage before lots of criticism and pushback and uh, challenges from everybody around you. And you you got to be committed to mission and be able to have the stamina to get through that, take criticism and get through to the other side and look back and say, gee, I think we got something done. You know, it may not have been perfect, but but it was what it took to to make our society healthier. So right now, Bill, I'm a professor that encourages all my students to give government a try, even if it's just a summer internship. Hmm. Uh, I tell them they'll never learn so much. They'll never be in an in a environment that's so complicated. I mean, being in government, trying to do public health, for example, through election times is very, very stressful because uh, you don't you don't know who's going to be still left in government after the elections are over. So that is uh, something I really recommend. And once you do that, you get up in the morning and you look at the world in a different way. You, you look mm. at um, interviews on TV in a different way. Lots of times you're the ones being asked to do the interviews, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> being challenged by the press or by advocates, and that makes you stronger, if I can say. So I'm a firm believer in good government and public service. And, yeah. and I would really encourage all students <laughs> to do that. By the way, you really can't understand public health un- unless you've been in government. I'm gonna say that right out. You can sit on the sidelines and speculate about what it's like, but once you've been through it and you know how important and difficult it is, you make a commitment to encourage others to do the same. Yeah. So. <laughs> That, that's well, uh, my view on that.
0: <laughs> and I can't help but think about where we started this conversation. As as proud as your parents were when you became a physician, I can imagine how much you were thinking about them when you were in the corridors of power right there in Washington, uh, D.C. That
1: had to be something. Thank you. Well, you know, my late father, Dr. Kwang mung Ko, was the ambassador to the United States from South Korea. So, uh, And he believed so deeply in human rights and democracy and freedom so when people ask me, "Gee, Howard, you're a physician. Where, where did all this public service and and politics stuff come from?" I, yeah. Yeah. I tell people it's literally in my blood. It came from my father. <laughs> yep. And then Amazing. right now, my uh, I, I should also add that my brother, uh, Professor Harold Ko, was also in the Obama administration uh, with me. He's an international human rights lawyer. So to serve in that administration uh, alongside my brother was uh, just something I uh, we both treasure, and we're very grateful. Incredible. <laughs> So
0: you, you're you not afraid of big challenges. You took on tobacco, you took on healthcare reform. I know that you've worked on the opioid epidemic and I know you're very involved these days on homelessness. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. Let's talk about the homeless crisis in this country. It It can be very dispiriting for people. It's so visual, it's in our faces, depending on where you live. And some people just feel like, there's not a solution. And I'm, I'm curious to know your thoughts on that, where you see hope and optimism and, and how we might tackle this, this terrible challenge.
1: Thank you, Bill. You're asking just such great questions. Yeah. So as you point out, homelessness is an increasingly visible and increasingly unacceptable humanitarian crisis. It's, it's not new. It's been with us for 40, 50 years or more. And COVID has only exacerbated all the complexity of Of this crisis. And when you turn on the news every day, you'll see that every mayor in the country is wrestling with this. Mayor Adams in New York, Mayor Wu in Boston, Mayor Bass in LA, just to name a few. And um, Bill, this started for me uh, as a priority when I was the state health commissioner some 20 years ago. There was one very harsh winter back then where some 13 homeless people froze to death on the streets of Boston. Mm. I'll Mm. never forget that. The, The press covered each death very carefully. Uh, The advocates were livid, appropriately so. They literally stormed state government and they asked, who who is responsible for responding and what is being done? And um, the the answer, Bill, was no one and nothing. I mean, there, there was no responsible entity in government, which astonished me. So back then as state health commissioner, I decided to step up and I formed an emergency task force that ran for a couple of years. And I ran those meetings. Our, our mission back then, Bill, was to just prevent people from freezing to death on the street. Uh, I'll never forget that. I would like to think it made a difference, but it was not nearly enough. And so for years, this has continued to haunt me. Hmm. Uh, when I came back to Harvard, I was particularly concerned that academia was really not giving this Crisis the attention it deserved. I mean, here in academia, especially at Harvard, we pride ourselves at addressing huge challenges like cancer or COVID or climate change. Sure. But very few universities have a dedicated academic center initiative to address health and homelessness. So we started our initiative on health and homelessness now four years ago. It's still a pilot, it still has a skeletal budget. But we are encouraging young students who want to be the next generation of leaders who have the courage and compassion to tackle this issue head on. It's interdisciplinary by nature. So we need a societal response that's much more committed and integrated. Now, you ask what gives me hope in this. Uh, I can cite a couple of things. First, we have the pleasure of working with the leading healthcare for the homeless organization in the country, Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Programme. Mm. Their president, Dr. Jim O'Connell has been my friend for a lifetime and Jim is a leading homeless health physician in the country. I mention him not only because he's a dear friend and and a hero to me and many others, but a new book on his life has come out in 2023 called Rough Sleepers by Tracy Kidder. and if you read that book, it'll it'll just captivate you mm. so we we need more. Professionals and doctors like Jim, if I can say, is a proud dad. My daughter, Dr. Katie Coe, is a street psychiatrist for Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program. Amazing. (laughs) You may say that. (laughs) (laughs) Very proud of her. So Jim is not only my lifelong friend, but my daughter's (laughs) boss. (laughs) Yes. And then, Bill, from a societal point of view, what gives me hope is that people may not know that in the world of veterans' homelessness – Rates have dropped by more than 50% over the last decade. And you ask why? Well, first of all, we had leadership from the top. Yeah, President Obama, my former boss, pledged to try to eliminate veterans' homelessness. And we're not quite there yet, but it's dropped dramatically compared to other types of homelessness in our country. And it occurred because there was leadership from the president. There was millions of dollars that was dedicated through Congress. It was integrated in interdisciplinary, we've had housing and urban development, and the VA and supportive services all work closely together uh, in the healthcare system. In the VA, physicians routinely ask about housing status and housing insecurity to all their patients and their families. By the way, so that that is hopeful. But you're you're right, Bill. This, this is a very very tough issue. So I'm yeah. I'm very immersed in this right now. Uh, one last thing I want to say about this is. I, I think as a society, we, we got to change the narrative about how we're addressing this issue because too often there's the unspoken feeling that people on the street somehow don't deserve care that we right. give to other people. Uh, my uh, mentor at Yale, Reverend William Sloan Coffin, would counter by saying we should care most for those society counted least and put last. Again, right. I'm a spiritual guy, so I like saying that whenever I'm asked to comment on this. I mean, that's the way we need to change this with by increasing commitment, increasing coordination and leadership on this issue so that we, we can continue to make progress like the VA have, has and see this as a issue that's not gonna get worse, but also deliver care and help the problem uh, recede uh, with, with commitment from all parts of society. So that's what we're trying to do right now.
0: I was glad that Dr. Koh mentioned H1N1. I was on a hospital board during this time he describes here and this part of our conversation reminded me of just how concerned we were when this form of the flu first came on the scene. And while it's easy to get disgusted by our elected officials and some of their behavior, it's also helpful to remember that there are many people working in our government behind the scenes and with, as Howard describes, great passion and dedication to service. And after taking on daunting challenges like tobacco use reduction and healthcare reform, it's no surprise to learn that Howard Co. is now working hard on one of the great challenges of our time, homelessness. Our conversation next turned to a discussion of the root causes of this problem. As an oncologist, you were, you were drawn to work sort of upstream, if you will, on tobacco use. And when you talk about the issue of homelessness with people, they have different theories. Well, the, it's a mental health crisis. Well, it's part of the opioid crisis. Well, it's veterans with PTSD. You hear all these different things. If you, as you look upstream to the homelessness crisis, where do you think we could make the most progress terms of changing behavior
1: before people are out on the street excellent excellent question excellent question. So of all the all those factors form this constellation of forces forces that drive people uh, into a homeless status number one is the lack of affordable housing and we're seeing this everywhere and again every mayor is wrestling with this and again this is a problem that's decades in the making. Yes. So, so we need more housing. We need more affordable housing. Uh, it's been estimated for every hundred extremely low-income households, there are only about thirty affordable housing units available to them. So that's wow. a huge gap. But then, as you point out, Bill, all these other forces are complicating uh, the crisis: the mental health and substance use challenges, poverty discrimination, people of color are disproportionately represented among the homeless population. So this is, again, where no one sector of society can tackle this. We we need everybody. Uh, We need a systems approach like the VA has done. The city of Houston, by the way, has had more success than other cities because two successive mayors, Anise Parker and now Sylvester Turner, have taken this on and formed a citywide coalition to move this forward. That coalition, by the way, also includes, very importantly, private business. Um, I, I feel very strongly that private business can do more for public health. And this yes. is one example in Houston where they're doing so. So these are some of the themes I'm trying to get my arms around. And the thing that excites me, Bill, is more students are now coming to our school in l- recent years writing in their applications that they want to come to Harvard because we have this initiative and that's the field they want to move into in the future. That thrills me, gives me so much gratification as a professor, because because we need to care for those uh, who are so underserved. And uh, th- this is the population at the top of the list for me right now.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned students, too, because I think as, as we get older, uh, one of the ways you can stay optimistic is hanging around with younger people who are so idealistic, so, so care about the planet and people. And it just sort of reminds you that you know you get to that age where you sort of like, get off my lawn, kids, you know, or these, <laughs> these kids are all immoral. And it, it's just the opposite from my experience. And I, I'm sure that that's one of the things that gives you hope as you stay in that college university environment at Harvard.
1: Yeah. If I can say more about that, um, Bill, last month, the school trotted me out for, I think, the fourth year <laughs> to be the keynote speaker at on the first day of orientation. So Oh, wow. I I had the privilege of welcoming 500 new students to our school from around the world. So I reviewed the basics of what is public health and how do you define it, what are our goals, and what makes it fascinating and often frustrating sometimes, of course. But then I pointed out that through COVID, where we've had uh, over a million deaths and then a lot of strain and drain on medical and public health professionals. People are leaving the field. Hmm. I I helped co-author a study that came out recently showing that half of state and local public health professionals left through COVID. Wow. That's that's the bad news, half. But the good news is that public health schools everywhere, not just our school, but everywhere, are seeing applications rising because young people see the crisis, they see the challenge, and they want to be involved as part of the solution. Wow! So to welcome them to Harvard, and they're from all over the world, Bill, it it was just, that was a month ago, but I'm still uh, so inspired by them. And they are the future. They're going to step up and be the next leaders. And we want them to be informed and educated and encouraged as they they take this step. And we're so grateful to them. Amazing.
0: You've mentioned several times in our conversation uh, the importance of spirituality in your own life. But you've also, or and you've also, research this and the and the benefits and written about the benefits of spirituality and people's overall well-being. I'd love for you to talk to about about that in general and then also in the context of often I think our spiritual lives are something we leave at the door when we go to work. It's sometimes it's a very sensitive topic, especially I would think in academic settings, scientific, if you will, settings. I'm wondering if you could share with us sort of the headlines of the research and writing that you've done on this and, and how you've navigated that world in, a, in an academic setting like you're in to actually talk about something like spirituality.
1: Oh, yeah, Bill, you're great. Oh, I love talking about <laughs> this. <laughs> so this has been another very, very gratifying chapter of my journey. And, um, you know, Bill, there's a definition of health through the World Health Organization that health is, quote, a state of complete physical mental and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity right that's the quote i think about it almost every day yep so that's a broad quote and it's means that the gift of health is not just physical health but it's also our emotional well-being and our social well-being and our spiritual well-being that's what real health is all about so it's a very broad and deep definition Again, starting when I was a young cancer doctor, I would see patients at the end of their lives turning to their faith and their spirituality to to get them through the toughest challenges of their illness. Hmm. That made a big impression on me. But then I'd look and we physicians ignored it. The faculty, the professors, I mean, they were focused on treatment A versus treatment B versus treatment C. Hmm. Uh, And you know, here are these, here's a theme that was so important to patients and we didn't address it. Hmm. And so, um, that's sort of when my thinking about this issue started. My mentor at Yale, I've now mentioned him before in this podcast, Reverend Coffin used to always push us to think about what was bigger in our journey as healers and as uh, health professionals. Uh, he would sometimes, preach that there was too much competition in the world and not enough compassion. Hmm. Uh, he had a great line <laughs> that he said mostly to us Ivy league students, you know, you, 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 you guys like to congratulate yourselves for winning the rat race <laughs> by getting to places like this. But when you win the rat race, you're still a rat. <laughs> <laughs> So, so even back then, I would think a lot about, you know, what, what's giving meaning and purpose to the journey. And then, as I've already mentioned now, Bill, here, here I had my life all planned out. I was going to be a, a clinician um, and be the best cancer doctor in the world, but I got I literally got called into public service at the state and, and federal level. So you're now talking to a guy who's convinced that we need to talk, talk more about calling in our lives. What are we here for? What? are we meant to do in our journey on this earth? So when I came back from uh, D.C. in 2014, I got involved in more the academic side of health and spirituality and joined some great colleagues at my school. And there's more research done in this area than people realize. And one thing led to another, and a team of about a dozen of us wrote a major paper that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association last year. My wonderful colleague from Harvard, Dr. Tracy Balboni, is the first author. I'm the senior author. And what did this show? After looking at the most rigorous studies on health and spirituality published between the year 2000 and 2022, it said people have spiritual needs. They they want attention to their spiritual lives as part of their care, that physicians and the medical system generally overlook these issues, which are so important to patients. You know, we often talk about patient-centered care. So if these themes are important to patients, we physicians should be paying attention to it. And then from a broader public health lens, spiritual uh, beliefs and a commitment to some sense of meaning and purpose in in one's life leads to healthier outcomes. in general, there is a longer life for people uh, in that category. There's one very important set of studies showing that regular religious service attendance is associated with longer life and better mental health and lower rates of substance use, for example. Mm-hmm. So when that study came out last summer, uh, Bill, we, we got a worldwide response because it put these issues on the map in one of the best journals in the world, JAMA. Yep. And it shows there's rigor here and that we really need to reintegrate spirituality into health care and public health going forward if we're truly going to bring health to more people in the future. So that's a major, major passion for me now. It's something that gives me great gratitude mm-hmm. and appreciation for the richness of this. And so thank you for raising that, Bill. And, and, you know, I want to keep adding to this literature and research and work as I go forward in my career fascinating i i've been watching uh
0: the blue zones show on on netflix oh, yeah. and i don't know how, how solid the science is and and but you know he studies these parts of the world where these people are living these incredibly long lives and centenarians everywhere and and it, i think it was in uh, okinawa japan and the concept i think it, i think the word is ikigai which means sort of your purpose in life you know bigger than yourself that sort of thing and and whether that's making food for the community or using your hands to build crafts something or spirituality or all the above. It's, it's a key ingredient. And obviously Viktor Frankl, there's others who've talked about the importance of, of purpose and meaning in your life. It's, it's just a huge subject that I bet doesn't get touched in medical schools.
1: Yeah. And the, exa- the examples you just said are really important, Bill, because often when people hear spirituality, they immediately say, oh, that means religion. And for many people that is the case, but for many others, it's more informal and it has to do with how you get a sense of meaning and purpose in what you do, whether it's interacting with family or working with your community or being involved with nature or the arts community building. I think it's a huge part of this. So I, I love the examples you just cited, Bill, because spirituality is a pretty broad term. And people find meaning and purpose in lots of different and fascinating ways, not, not just through uh, religious service attendance.
0: There are so many facets to our homelessness crisis, and surely home prices and lack of affordable housing are big drivers. As an earlier Blue Sky guest, Bert Jacobs of Life is Good said, it will be hard to make any big changes in our society without the participation of the business sector. And it was interesting to hear Dr. Koh echo that sentiment here. You can also hear the excitement in Howard's voice when he talks about working with students. No doubt they are fortunate to learn from someone like Dr. Koh, but the benefits of their interactions run both ways. As Blue Sky alum Kevin Kelly says, young people should have older friends and old people should have younger friends. I couldn't agree more. It's also refreshing to hear Howard Coe speak in such straightforward way about the role of spirituality in health and healing. Note that he's not saying everyone must attend religious services or sign up for any particular belief, but rather tapping into our own inner or spiritual lives can be of great benefit to all of us. To start our final segment, I asked Dr. Ko to speak about another facet of his life, a great love of music. You know, when people hear your background, they may be very surprised to know that you are also an accomplished (laughs) musician and singer. And can you talk about the role that that has played in your life? Because I know when I, I, I'm neither an accomplished musician nor singer, but I love music. (laughs) And if I want to get taken away or forget forget my troubles for a while. It's listening to music, going to a concert. Can you talk about the role that music has played in your life?
1: Oh, uh, Bill, you always ask me the best <laughs> questions. <laughs> I know uh, you too well. <laughs> yeah, so I am very, very fortunate because I've I loved singing ever since I was a little kid. Uh, when I was in high school, I, I didn't get to sing in any sort of formal way. And then when I went to Yale College, uh, they had, and still have, uh, a glee club, a Yale glee club, which is one that has enjoyed a national, if not global, reputation. Uh, back then, the director was a man named Fenno Heath, who was a, a legend. F- Fennel uh, welcomed me into the glee club mm. after I auditioned, and uh, even though I didn't have much formal singing experience back then, and it, it just changed my life, Bill. First, first of all, you get to bathe in the joy of musical expression, which is just an indescribable feeling. But then you also join uh, and appreciate this warm camaraderie of community. And as you just pointed out, Bill, when you're singing with a group of people and you're working to create this beautiful product that others will appreciate, it, it really makes you think about harmony in the world and how the world should be in, the, in, in under ideal circumstances. Fennel used to say, there's too much talking in the world and not enough singing. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Uh, And he was absolutely right. And, uh, you know, at the beginning of rehearsals, you know, you'd have cacophony and it didn't sound so great. And by the end of many practices, you'd have this beautiful harmony. In in some ways, Bill, this has been a metaphor for public health for me. When you get people Hmm. working together and you build a beautiful product. Hmm. It, it, it is just an indescribable feeling. So, so I've loved that, and singing has been a major, major part of my life. I sing at all family birthday parties. I play the yeah. guitar. I play a little guitar a little bit. And by the way, it has also crept into my formal, uh, professional life too. Because on occasion, at meetings or celebrations uh, with health professionals, I'll break out in the song, and people always. <laughs> <laughs> but re- remember that. So it's a way of spreading joy and connecting with people. Yeah. Uh it's just you and your voice, no instruments or anything. And people always remember it. And it's and it builds a bond and a source of joy and connection that is that's pretty hard to beat, Bill. So, so thank you. that's amazing. And I
0: in the spiritual setting too, I've heard people say in, in church or other places of worship that when you sing you pray twice. <laughs> Which I always thought was a, a lovely oh, way to fantastic. put it. Thank you. We share we also share a passion for baseball <laughs> And I know from my research you've done something I've never done at a big league ballpark and you've done it at two big league ballparks. you've thrown out the first pitch at National Stadium in Washington and Fenway Park, the oldest ballpark in America. my, my question was, what was that like but more importantly, did you throw a strike either) <laughs> <time>? <laughs>
1: Well, Bell, in the next podcast, I'm going to interview you because, <laughs> I mean, you've had this fantastic career in broadcasting <laughs> and media yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and health and um, in the sports world. Uh, oh, oh, my goodness. So, uh, you know, th- yeah, this is an area that bonds us yet again. Yeah, I had the incredible privilege of throwing out the first pitch in 2003 at Fenway Park. Um, and the Boston Red Sox recognized me for my work in early detection of melanoma and designated me a medical all-star <laughs> yes. 2011 in DC when I was at the department of health and human services, they trotted me out to throw out the first pitch for HHS night. Uh, both of them were surreal experiences, <laughs> Bill. Uh, I mean, it is just, and both of them came about because of public health. I mean, again, you yeah right. who knew
0: out. that was your path to the big leagues.
1: Yeah, uh, I, 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 uh, I joke now that you know, both times I stood on the mound with the ball in my hand. I looked at the thousands of people in the stands, and I said to myself, I love public health. <laughs> Without public health, it wouldn't have gotten me there. Now, the first time, but back to your question, the first time, somehow the pitch went right over the plate. Wow. So, so afterwards, as my family and I were being guided to our seats and and the, and the Red Sox staff were walking us through the stands, people were, were yelling out as I walked past Nice pitch, Doc. Great job, Doc. <laughs> that was great, Doc, and I felt great. You know, the second time, unfortunately, Bill, I was I became a sinker ball artist. Oh no, <laughs> you're a little cocky, probably going to the second uh, one. Yeah, yeah, I should have practiced <laughs> a little more. But so I've had the highs and lows, but both both times were indescribable, Bill, and I would never trade it for the world. So, so thanks for asking me about that.
0: <laughs> well, s- speaking of highs and lows, as as we wrap this up, and it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. It, there are people. That i encounter we all encounter who really struggle to stay hopeful to stay optimistic who look at everything from climate change to political unrest there's plenty of things to focus on that that get us down and you've had such a wide career you have such a, a range of interests I'd, I'd love to hear just sort of parting words on what you would say to folks to keep getting them out of bed every day and and how you do that in your life? What, what keeps you optimistic and and what would you like to share with the listening audience on that subject?
1: Well, first of all, Bill, the fact that you have this podcast and you bring in colleagues like myself to, to comment on this is really important. And these are tough, tough times. Yeah. There have been others who have asked me to reflect on optimism and hope and how are they related and how are they different? So that, That topic has fascinated me for a long, long time. So when you asked me to do this, of course, the answer was yes. Some have pointed out that optimists think the odds are in their favor, but, and, and, (laughs) those with hope say that even when the odds are against you, you have to have some faith and belief for the future. And so I think in that regard, you know, I'm a person who has faith and belief that we have to have a better future, even when the odds are against you. You have to be rooted in some conviction that that there's a better future that's worth working for. And Bill, that progress from what I've learned in my career, it takes a long time. It takes a long time. Yes. But the tobacco story is one that gives me hope because that's been decades. Uh, We're still at it. But we've made progress that I've just reviewed for you. Uh, we have major changes uh, char- uh, challenges rather with public health, um, rebuilding the workforce that I just mentioned, climate change that you just mentioned, uh, opioids that that's a big big challenge. Sure. Many other issues, but we we need to encourage the next generation to have the courage and hope and optimism that we can do something about it. That's the only way our world is going to get better. And I'm going to end like the way I began, citing my parents. This is this is why my folks came mm-hmm. here, and they wanted their family to have a better life. And, and we have had a better life because of their sacrifice. And then uh, my wife and I want to do the same for our children and now our grandchildren. I, I think everybody on Earth wants to do that, too. So that's, that's what keeps me going. And, Bill, that's why I'm so glad to be here and share these thoughts with you. Oh, thank you so much.
0: This is just as much fun as I hoped it would be, just as inspiring. And I know you're very busy, so I can't thank you enough for taking this time to be on the podcast. Thank you so much. My
1: pleasure. Thanks so much. You can hear the joy
0: in Howard Coe's voice when he says, bathe in the joy of musical expression. And as we try to live optimistic and hopeful lives, embracing passions like music or baseball or whatever brings you joy is extremely helpful. And note the important thing he said about making meaningful changes in the world. This work takes time, and it's important not to get discouraged when the pace of change is not to our liking. And getting back to Howard's stories about his parents, we can only imagine how proud they must have been of their children and you can hear a similar tone in Howard's voice when he mentions the work his daughter is doing, helping people who are alone on the streets. I hope you enjoyed and were inspired by this blue sky conversation with Dr. Howard Koh. If you like this sort of content, consider subscribing to this podcast and also follow the Optimism Institute on social media, if you don't already. Until next time, I'm the founder of the Optimism Institute and host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke. And I thank you for listening.